Well, listen, we're coming close to the end of 2 Corinthians, so turn in your Bible if you have it. We'll also have the, uh, the verses up on the screen to chapter 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 11, and we're going to just begin by reading this section and then praying. Verse 11, I have been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Paul is wrapping up this letter, and a lot of what he says, he has said before, we've heard before. So, Rather than go verse by verse through this passage, I want to take a little pastoral license this morning and look at these verses through the lens of the relational mess and the beautiful grace that exists between Paul and the brothers and sisters at Corinth. With that in mind, let's pray together. Father, we are recipients of your grace. We truly are. How wonderful that 2,000 years after Jesus, your grace still reaches through the ages and touches lives, real lives, real people, real men and women and children, bringing us into your kingdom, saving us, cleansing us, loving us. Lord, we thank you for your grace. But Lord, we also realize that Everything isn't all cleaned up right away. And there can be mess. And there can be relational mess. Lord, we pray that through this time in your word, 
that you will help us, particularly where we may be dealing specifically with relational conflict, strain, sin. And I pray that, Lord, your Spirit will speak to our hearts a new path, maybe a new direction than what we've been doing. One that is guided by your Spirit rather than our flesh. So, Spirit of God, speak to our hearts. We want to be good ground for you this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you watch any TV, you probably have heard the words of the opening of a show at some point. A voice comes on and says, previously, on, and the name of whatever show you watched. And then you see a bunch of clips that kind of bring you up to speed to what's happened before and what is where you're at in the point in time. So I kind of want to say, previously, in 2 Corinthians, we have seen Paul worried, stressing, that he has damaged his relationship with the Corinthians through very strong words, a very difficult and unpleasant visit, and then followed up where he wrote a quick letter in the heat of the moment, sent it off and regretted it as soon as he sent it out. He thought he had maybe done irreparable damage in his relationship with the Corinthians. But then in chapter 7, we find him breathing a sigh of relief because Titus comes with the good news that all is well between him and the Corinthian church. And so all is good. But then we get to chapter 10, and he comes back with some of the strongest language in this letter yet. And chapter 10 through 13 is a strong warning. It is a decimation of the false apostles. It is a defense of his apostolic ministry. And it is a rebuke with sarcasm and and strong language of those who would follow the false apostles. So are things good between Paul and the Corinthians, or are they not good? Well, verses chapters 1 through 6, things are not good. Chapters 7 through 9, things are good. Chapters 10 through 13, things are not so good. It's going up and down. It's complicated. What's going on between Paul and the Corinthians and their relationship? Well, I think this letter captures what is so often true relationships aren't a straight line. They go up. They go down. They go around. They go under. Relationships are not a straight line. There's grace, there's mess, there's messy grace. So I want to just say this. Make no mistake. We could go through verses in 1 Corinthians in particular and see, Corinth was a church full of grace. Paul writes to them, you lack no spiritual gift, nothing. God's grace is so powerful upon you. There is incredible grace in Corinth, particularly in the spiritual gifts. Guys, if you want to get prayed for, if you're sick and you want to get prayed for, Corinth is where you want to be. You don't want to go to Galatia. They might circumcise you. You want to go to Corinth and get prayed for. Because that's where the spiritual gifts are happening. They are happening. So you get prayed for, you're healed. There's some prophecies going on in the service. Someone's speaking in tongues. 
There's all kinds of spiritual gifts going on, a word of knowledge over here, word of wisdom over there. It's all like that. And you're like, man, this is, I mean, God's Spirit is moving. God's grace in the gifts, the charisma is happening here. But then you come back for a couple Sundays, and you begin to notice there's something else happening here too. Paul writes about it in verse 20. He says that perhaps when I, I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. <clears throat> that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. <laughs> Stop and think about that list. I mean, if you went to the Corinthian website and looked under what to expect when you visit, you're going to find quarreling, anger, hostility. You know what hostility? That means the guy in row three is ready to kill the guy in row four. I mean, hostility, slander, gossip. I mean, that's some list. There is a lot of relational sin going on in this church. There are people who don't like each other very much in this church, but he's not done. Verse 21, he says, I also fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. So you got sexual sin going on. You you got all this relational sin going on. And right about now, Galatia's looking a lot better, actually. Corinth is riddled with relational and moral sin. I don't hear it as much anymore, but I remember it was really popular uh, a decade or two ago, three decades ago, for people to say, I want to find a New Testament church. Have you ever heard that said? Boy, I want to find a New Testament church. And my question is, which part is it that you're wanting to find? Is it the quarreling? Is it the gossip you're looking for? The sexual immorality? Which part of it exactly are you hoping to find? See, I think a lot of times people get the impression the New Testament church was a perfect church power of God. People's lives transformed. Bang! And you came, and you know, once every six years, somebody sinned, but they dealt with it right away. The New Testament church was far, far from perfect. And I actually find this, relation, this encouraging, because it tells me that relationships can be messy and still have, and even when, God is working in them. And churches can be messy even when God is working in them. And so it made me think, that and a couple other things this week, made me think back. I've been attending churches. I got saved in 1975. So I have been consistently involved in attending churches since 1975. Churches have been a big part of my life for the past 46 years. <clears throat> and over these years, I've seen grace. 
and I've seen mess. And sometimes I've been the one making the mess. I got an email this week from a woman who, as a teenager, attended Lamb's Chapel, where I pastored back in the 90s. And I hadn't heard from her since the 90s. But she wrote to me an email just this past week, out of the blue. And uh, Megan's doing great. She's uh, on staff at an Acts 29 church now. She's doing fantastic family, kids. And it was so great to hear from her. But she wrote me an email and said, hey, would you, would you mind Zooming this week, doing a Zoom meeting? Because I'm thinking back on some of the things that happened And I would love to get your perspective on it. Because her wonderful family was attending Lamb's Chapel, and then we went through some, well, it was messy time. For a number of reasons, we went through a messy time. And it wasn't wasn't just one thing. It was a perfect storm of a number of things that occurred. And she's carried some thoughts about that time. She was a teenager. She wanted to hear my perspective. So we had a wonderful, wonderful Zoom meeting. It was so encouraging. It was so great. But I had to tell her. I shared with her, and there were some things that she that was not correct, but I had to say, I mean, listen, there was a lot of mess, and I was responsible for my fair share of the mess going on at that time. 23 years later, I see the grace as bigger. But back then, it seemed like the mess was bigger. So, excuse me, we can get the wrong idea that if a church is operating in grace and God is working in a church, it will be a perfect or near-perfect church. Or that if there is mess going on, there must not be grace going on. God must not be working. And if we think that, I have seen people stumble in their Christian faith. I have seen people walk away from Jesus because they come to the conclusion that this Jesus thing isn't real. Because I see the mess in the church. There's too much hypocrisy in the church. I got hurt in a church there's not enough love in the church and they see this mess they see whatever it is and they come to a conclusion i'm walking away from jesus because this jesus stuff isn't real obviously where there's mess there's no grace god's not working jesus isn't real And that is built on the false premise that the Bible promises that where Jesus is, sin isn't. And that's a false premise. Jesus came to save the sick, the unhealthy sinners saved by grace. And until Jesus returns, where there's grace, there will be mess. And this might be very real and very personal to some of you. This may be more than just concept to you because you've walked through hurt. You've walked through disillusionment. You've walked through broken relationships. 
You know what that's about. <clears throat> you've been disappointed. You've been damaged. You've been wronged by the church or by Christians. And so this might be very personal to you. And I want, to, I want, to, I want you to know I'm not downplaying the pain, the hurt, the wrong, the sin. That's not where this is coming from. I will also say that it's very, very likely that you have also contributed hurt and disillusionment to others. That you have wronged somebody. That you have not been a perfect representative of Jesus Christ to everyone. Let's be real. Let's be honest. This is a two-way street. We will never have grace without mess this side of heaven. But what we can do, what Paul is urging the Corinthians towards, is to minimize the mess and maximize the grace. Minimize the sin, maximize the obedience to God. Minimize the sin that breaks churches and relationships apart. Maximize the love of Christ in His people. And so I want to share three points from this chapter and uh, we're going to kind of finish with a, a big area that we're not going to cover this morning, next Sunday. But three thoughts from this chapter to help us minimize mess and maximize grace in Grace Community Church. And the first thought, point, is this. Don't give up easily on relationships just because they get messy. Don't give up easily on relationships just because they get messy. Now, someone might say, well, which verse in this chapter are you finding that in? And I would say all of them. I would say all of this letter is saying that. Because Paul keeps on loving Corinth. He doesn't give up on them. He doesn't walk away from them. He doesn't pull back from them. He doesn't start saying, you guys aren't even Christians with all that list of stuff going on. He keeps on loving and caring and reaching out to them, appealing to them, and yes, correcting them. There is nothing easier than to walk away from a relationship when it gets messy. When conflict comes, someone hurts us, disappoints us, criticizes us, or sometimes what's even more painful is they accuse us of wronging them, hurting them, disappointing them, there is nothing easier than to say, adios, amigos, I'm out of this relationship, and walk away. But when we walk away at the first sign of conflict, we miss the opportunity for God to do some of His greatest work. Relationships don't become strong by avoiding conflict. They become strong by working through conflict to the other side. 
if you have two smooth surfaces that you want to bond together and you want a strong bond, you want to get some sandpaper out and rough both surfaces up a little bit. That will help the bond to be stronger. If you want a friendship to be stronger, sometimes it takes some roughing up in that friendship. Some walking through some hard times. Working through some conflict. You get scratched up, they get scratched up, but the bond becomes stronger for it. When you allow God to keep your hearts united in love. Love is tested when we go through hard times and get to the other side. It gives us opportunity to forgive and to be forgiven. It gives us opportunity to accept someone, flaws and all. And it gives us opportunity to be accepted, flaws and all. And I think deep in our hearts, we want to be a part of a community where we are accepted for who we are, flaws and all. Getting there takes not giving up easily on relationships when they get messy. Now, I want to say this. I say easily. I don't say ever. Because there are times when a church or a relationship is so damaged or so damaging that the healthiest thing is to put space between you and that relationship. There is a time for that. There is, a, there is a purpose for that. And by the way, I just want to say this. Um, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. This is not like if you left the church, you know, it's not like there's good reasons to leave a church. And it doesn't have to be because somebody sinned against you so badly. You could say, I'm leaving Grace Community Church because I'm tracking more with the church down the road. It's not like you, that's... You, you have to have an act of from heaven to leave a church. That's not what this is about. You can leave a church well and healthy and relationships all good and intact. But sometimes there's even a reason when things are so damaged or so damaging that you do have to put distance between you and a church or even you and a person. There, there are times like that. Until, until there is a heart change here, the healthiest thing for me is to separate. There is a point for that. Paul has plenty of times where he says that. Have nothing to do with them. My experience after 46 years of church life is that should be relatively rare. That should be relatively rare. If you look back on your life and there's a string of broken relationships and broken uh, experiences in churches and, and such, one of the reasons might be, there might be different reasons, and I'm not trying to you know, judge what, what it is, but one of the reasons you may want to consider is, do I give up too easily on relationships when things get messy? That's the first point. Don't give up on relationships the minute they get messy. The second is this, dial the pride down to zero. I'll explain what I mean by that. Nothing busts up relationships like pride. Pride is the big relationship killer. 
Now, in verse 12 of this chapter, we learn something else about Paul. I don't know about you, but man, I am impressed with Paul. I mean, he is the gold standard of apostolic ministry, authority, and power. And so on top of him going to unreached people groups and preaching the gospel and planting churches like Corinth and then loving them for years, discipling them in Christ, being an example to them of Christ, and all of that, laying down his life for them in the Spirit of Christ. Not only that, in verse 12, we find out that he was performing signs and wonders and mighty works of God while he was there. Paul was doing mighty, powerful works of God. People were getting healed, and not just of headaches. Major illnesses they were getting healed of. Demons were being cast out and people set free from demon possession. We know in Acts that so powerful was the anointing on Paul's life, and he's the only one. It's not like all the apostles were doing this. He's the only apostle that said they would take handkerchiefs and aprons that touched his skin and they would take it to people and they would be healed. They would take it to demon-possessed people and they would be set free by touching the cloth that touched Paul. The only other apostle who came close to that was Peter whose shadow could heal. Paul walked in a power, in an authority in a supernatural, miraculous power of God that is awesome. And yet, the Corinthians are trying to figure out, do we even think this guy's a real apostle or not? There's a whole, whole group that's belittling Paul, scorning him, undermining him. And it's not just the false apostles. The false apostles, they're saying he's, he's horrible, he's weak, he's vacillating, he changes his mind, he's, he's, he says one thing when he's with you, he says another. They're saying all these things to say this, Paul is a phony. You know what the real problem was? There are many in the church who are listening to that. They're buying into it. Yeah, you know what? These guys are polished, they're powerful speakers, they're charismatic, they sound wise. Paul's kind of simple. He comes in, he preaches Jesus Christ. That's it. Kind of sick and tired of just hearing about Jesus. Let's move on to deeper things. Maybe he's not an apostle. Paul says, when you should have been commending me, you weren't. So that's the context. People belittling him, scorning him, undercutting him. Paul has this powerful powerful ministry from God and powerful anointing and authority, and yet to the people who are belittling his ministry, he says in verse 11, I am nothing. I am nothing. Now, if I were counseling Paul, I think I would say, let's not say that, <laughs> all right? Because they already think that. What we want them to begin to realize, you are actually something. Pretty special in the eyes of God. Why would Paul say to the people who are scorning him, why would he say to them, I am nothing? It's not false humility. I think Spurgeon gets it right when he says this. 
Beloved, I feel sure that when the apostle said that he was nothing, he meant that he was nothing in comparison with his Lord. He had seen the glory of his master up yonder in heaven, and he had preached that glory among the sons of men, and as for himself, he could not find any figure to represent his own insignificance. The smallest of figures was too large for him. He dared not describe himself by the figure one. And so he put down a zero and declared, I am nothing. This is not false humility. Paul is saying who he is. He's making it clear where his authority is. But remember, Paul had just shared about going to heaven, seeing things people have never seen that he was not allowed to even speak of. And that is fresh in his memory, ringing in his mind. And Paul had seen with his own eyes the greatness and the glory of God. And in the light of the greatness and the glory of God, Paul could not put himself down as something. He could not say in the light of that, I am something. All he could say is, I am nothing. He's not talking about his value in God's eyes. He's talking about his greatness. Our value was assessed by the Lord at the cross. Now I want to say, not because we're worth Jesus dying, but he considered us worth dying. So our value in the eyes of God, the appraisal is the cross. He paid it all for us. Paul is talking about his greatness. This is about who's great. And Paul is saying, compared to God, I can't even put a one on the dial. I'm going to dial this thing down to zero. I am nothing compared to God. Nothing. And for him to say that to the people who are undermining him, he had to dial his pride down to zero. Pride kills relationships. And one of pride's favorite weapons in conflict is defensiveness. And the reason I bring that up is because defensiveness is our attempt to turn the dial up on what people think about us. We think they're giving us a two, we should be getting an eight. And so defensiveness is us turning the dial up. See this dial? You got it wrong. I'm not a two, I'm an eight. Sometimes defensiveness says, you're the two. It's trying to correct people's opinion of us upward. Husbands, I'm sure you've had this experience. You know, you think you're clicking in at a seven and a half at least as a husband. You know, you go to like a marriage thing and they say, how's your marriage doing? Guys, you're probably going to say, well, seven, seven and a half, maybe an eight. The humble ones among us say six and a half. And then you hear your wife say, maybe a three, three and a half. And you're like, what? What? 
And you, you get defensive, right? You get defensive. She's not appreciating me and how much I do. And so what does he do? He tries to argue her into turning her dial up. I am speaking from experience. I love this story. Paul Tripp tells a story early in his marriage. <laughs> early in his marriage, when his wife Luella was expressing some dissatisfaction and some criticisms about how he was doing this husband thing, he boastfully declared to her, Luella, 95% of the women in the church would love to be married to a guy like me. And she said, put me down in the 5%. What was he doing? He was trying to turn his dial up. And she turned his dial right down. Defensiveness is often the result of hurt pride. My pride is hurt. I'm defensive. And by the way, by the way, and again, from experience, you never think you're being defensive when you're defensive. Okay? So, if somebody says, hey, don't be defensive. You're like, I'm not defensive. Right? I'm not defensive, okay? I'm just telling you the truth, because you're wrong. But defensiveness is often a result of hurt pride. And what I've found is defensiveness doesn't listen well. It doesn't listen well. It often doesn't hear. When we're defensive, we're not really hearing what the other person is saying. We're hearing their words through a filter that puts words in their mouth, and inputs interpretation of meaning into what they do say. We're not just hearing their words, we're hearing interpretation through their words. And hurt pride thinks they're saying we're a one when we know we're working to be a seven, but maybe they're not talking about numbers at all. Paul Tripp couldn't really understand what Luella was trying to say until he stopped fiddling with the dial and listened with humility. There might be a husband or two in here that needs to hear this. And a wife is... And there might be a wife or two in here that needs to hear this. And maybe we all need to hear this. To really listen to people when they bring criticism, whether that criticism is accurate or not, we need to turn the I am great dial down to zero and listen humbly. And to do that, we need to turn our pride's dial down to zero. Now, don't write me a theological treatise that we can't ever turn the dial down to zero. I think you're tracking with me. Paul says, I am nothing. He aims for zero in his own pride and his own greatness. To listen humbly doesn't assume they're right, but it doesn't assume they're wrong either. It listens. And it tries to understand what they're saying and walk it through. Paul was honest about the apostolic greatness on his life, but he could honestly say, I am nothing. Compared to God's greatness and glory, he says, I my greatness is coming in at zero. 
as much as possible, let's dial our pride down to zero. Third and last point, don't keep score. Don't keep score. Paul gave a lot to the Corinthian church. He says, I will gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I will lay it out there for you. I'll do it all. He says, I gave to you and I wasn't a burden. What that means is he didn't even charge them rent. He didn't charge them any payment. He, he, he brought his own money in. He supported himself. And in return for him laying it all out, giving it all to them, spending himself on them, they criticized him. They belittled him. They betrayed him. They talked behind his back against him. They scorned him and mocked him. And it, and, and it seems a little lopsided, doesn't it? Seems a little lopsided in a relationship tally there. Sometimes you invest love and care into someone's life and they repay you with hurt and betrayal. And if we're keeping score, we're probably going to be tempted to quit. Don't keep score. Now, listen, healthy relationships do need to be a two-way street. They do need to be a two-way street. Paul says to him, if I love you more, will you love me less? Is that the way this thing's going to work? It's not wrong to expect giving and caring to not just flow in one direction. Sometimes for a season, though, it will flow in one direction. And that's, Paul is saying, I'm like a parent. Parents, you know... The money all goes pretty much in one direction. <laughs> and it ain't back to you. <laughs> it's not wrong for us to expect love and caring to go in both directions, but don't keep score. Jesus gave everything for us. He gave everything for us. And he did it knowing we could never pay him back. But I find myself wondering if maybe we do pay him back. Now stick with me before you go gather stones or label me a heretic. Hebrews 12 says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, despised the shame of the cross. What was the joy set before Jesus? It wasn't heaven. He came from heaven. He could have just stayed in heaven and stayed with that joy. The joy set before Jesus was bringing us with him into heaven. The joy Jesus felt was welcoming us into his eternal kingdom. That was the joy set before him that, were, that was in his eyes as he faced down the, the despising and the scorn and the excruciating torture of the cross. It was for the joy set before him. It was the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. The price it cost to save us was the cross. But the joy Jesus experiences and feels as He welcomes us into our eternal home, I think it could well be priceless to His heart. To say though to those who were perishing and lost, welcome home. Enter into my kingdom. 
and to see the joy and the gratitude and the I don't deserve this on our faces as He welcomes us in. Priceless. The joy was so great He could despise the shame. Now listen, the payback isn't us giving to Jesus. The payback is the joy Jesus feels at being able to give us so much so freely. That's the currency of love. That's the love of Christ. And the more the Holy Spirit fills the church with the Spirit of Jesus, the less we will relationally be bartering with each other and the more we will love each other. God doesn't call us to keep score. He calls us to love. Now sometimes hard words and strong correction needs to be spoken. And sometimes grace needs to be tough. And we're going to see that a little bit more next week. But as we conclude this morning, and I am only going to say that once this morning, <laughs> now I may talk for another half hour, but I'm only going to say that once. <laughs> the question is, what is Paul's demeanor towards the Corinthian church after he spent and was spent for them and they treated him so badly? Was, did it leave him defensive? Did it leave him bitter? Did it leave him pulling back from them? I want you to listen to his words in verse 19. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. So what Paul's saying there is, this isn't about us. I'm not trying to defend myself because I'm important. I am speaking the truth in the sight of God. This is truth. This isn't defensiveness. This is truth. But listen to how he ends. But why speak the truth in the sight of God? He writes, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Every word all for you to be built up, built up, built up, built up. Beloved. That's a tender term. That is not a stay away from me, you hurt me term. That is a come close. You are loved in my heart. Beloved. After all the hurt and the rejection, he still loves them. He still draws them in. And that is the love of God through him. So as we close... Uh, <laughs> so... <laughs> hey, I didn't say in conclusion. <laughs> Completely different line here. How, Grace Community Church, how can we minimize mess and maximize grace? Because there is a lot of mess, and it is heartbreaking, and it shouldn't be. And it's not like God takes that lightly, nor should we. There's a lot of mess. But for us, church, as a church family, how can we minimize mess 
and maximize grace in our families, in our relationship, in our church. Three lessons from Paul. Don't give up easily on relationships just because they get messy. Turn the pride, the dial on pride down to zero and don't keep score. Or we could say all of that in just three words. Love each other. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you. Thank you for your fierce commitment to us. Lord, we know that we deserve to be given up on, but you never give up on us. You are fiercely committed and persistent. And Lord, as we come to you today, uh, we just ask you to help us to be not only full of the same love for one another, but aware of your love for us. Because, Lord, it's got to come to us before it can come through us. This message isn't just about do this. It's about get this. We, wanna, we need to draw upon the love of Christ in order to give the love of Christ. Help us to do that. Holy Spirit, we pray you minister to hearts now. I just want to take a moment here. And also, there's music coming through the, the earphones. I don't know where that's coming from. Um, so something, some, a song is playing. So if we can lose that. Um, I just realized a message like this could definitely speak a number of things to different people's hearts. And I just want to take a moment here to allow the Lord to minister to your heart. If you feel as though, you know, this has hit you, maybe you have a past, you have a history, there's a, there's a situation you had with a Christian, with a church, and there's still very, very real open wounds I want to assure you this message is not meant to minimize that. This message is not meant to say that's no big deal, you should just move on. But it is an encouragement. Don't let yourself stay there. Allow the Lord to heal that. Bring it to Him. Bring it to Him. Let Him minister healing to your heart. Let Him bring clarity See, it's okay to, you know, in my conversation with Megan, we talked about the good, the bad, and the ugly. And there was good, there was bad, there was ugly. But we're not stuck there. Nor do we think that's all there was. We know there was a lot of grace. We talked about some of the mess. Don't get stuck there. Let the Lord not only heal you, but free you from that. Don't keep cycling around it. Don't keep thinking about it. Don't let it uh, become your identity. Because your identity is in Christ. 
your identity is healing, deliverance, eternal life, adoption. That's your identity. One other thing, maybe someone here, you've hurt people and you realize you've hurt them. And I want to just say, don't let that paralyze you, but don't get defensive and don't try to deny it. You know, when... This morning I heard a beautiful rendition of the song, Cast All My Cares Upon You, and Joni Tata Erickson was singing it. We cast our cares upon the Lord, amen? But when we hurt someone, when we've created wounds, when we've, when we've done wrong, the way we cast those cares isn't by just forgetting them and moving on. It's by asking God to forgive us and cleanse us. It's by being honest about that. Some people just kind of hurt and move on, hurt and move on. And they say, well, I'm just casting it on the Lord. No. Conf cast on the Lord by confessing it. And sometimes you need to go back to the person that you hurt. Sometimes that's not possible. Sometimes it wouldn't be helpful. But if that's you, I just want to encourage you. Maybe you're living life out of a sense of pride. If I admit I did wrong, if I admit I hurt somebody, if I admit I did this, it will undo who I am. No, actually it'll set you free. And it'll be being real. So don't be afraid to. Let's take a moment before the presence of the Lord. The Holy Spirit wants to minister our hearts. I know a particular one of these points that speaks loudest to my heart. Maybe there's one that speaks loudest to your heart. Is there a relationship you're about to give up on because you've hit some bumps? Maybe rethink that. Is there a relationship you just, there's a defensive wall? Is, are you feeling ready to check out of the game because you think you've been keeping score and it's not adding up? Whatever it is, rethink that. Bring it to God. Let Him pour fresh grace into your heart. Lord, we are so thankful this morning, not only for the love of Christ and not only for the forgiveness of Christ, we're thankful for each other. We're thankful for the church. We're thankful that you don't call us to walk this thing out alone, but you call us to do it together. And Lord, we're maybe begrudgingly thankful that it's among imperfect people. Sometimes that hurts. Sometimes that's messy. But because we're imperfect, we actually are thankful that you use these things to work in our hearts. Good. To teach us a deeper love through the scratching and the roughing up. Now, Lord, I pray that if there's someone here in their heart or someone watching, their heart is being touched by this, maybe bringing up some old memories, whatever it is, that you, Holy Spirit, will begin to bring us deeper healing, a deeper freedom, deeper cleansing of that. 
And Lord, I pray also that if there's someone here who's just kind of, their arms are folded, maybe not externally, but internally, because they don't think they need this, they don't think this is, that Lord, you will help them to see what maybe they're not seeing. Where the walls are up, the defenses are up. And for their own benefit and their own sake, will you bring those defenses down? Will you help them to be secure enough to bring the defenses down? Holy Spirit, we pray that you will do that in all of us. Help us to work through as much as possible to the other side. And all in the name of Jesus and all by the love of Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If the Lord spoke some particular situation, I just want to encourage you, you know, I've heard it said, there's nothing more fleeting than conviction. If there's an action attributed or to that God's put in your heart, do it. Do it sooner rather than later. Because conviction can, can flee away. So act upon that. And I pray that your hearts will know the love of Christ as you leave here today. God bless you.